Our scripture reading this morning is John 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The word of the Lord. really good to be with you this morning. My name is Chipper. As Luke mentioned, we have, married to Kristen, we have two kids who are three and one. When we had our first kid, we were suspicious that we didn't know what we were doing. And we had our second kid, and we don't know what we're doing. And so I'm just glad to be here in one piece this morning, frankly. Um, Inquiring minds always want to know, not a lot of people have met someone named Chipper. I'm aware of that. And my, my given name is actually Forrest. I'm Forrest William Flanagan III. So I could be king somewhere, Scotland, Ireland probably. And my dad, growing up, he was junior, so he was called Junior, and I got the name Chipper. And that's, that's a pretty long story. Um, and then my son actually is Forrest William Flanagan IV. We call him Will, so we kind of all go by alternate names. Um, I'm aware that there is a movie called Forrest Gump. Um, It came out when I was in elementary school, which was terrible timing, as you can probably imagine. And it was especially bad for myself and my dad. I I am a runner. I was just getting into running at the time. So if you know the movie at all, you know what I'm talking about. My, My dad was also a runner, and he was also playing in these ping pong tournaments. So if you know the movie at all, and uh, completely serious, and at one point my mom was so frustrated by all of this, of course, because she has a husband named Forrest and a son named Forrest, that she was seriously talking about uh, writing a letter to the production company of the movie, and I was like, Mom, that will, that will not be necessary. <laughs> please, please do not do this. But yes, I'm, I'm very glad to be here. We love Colorado. I'm actually on a study leave right now from my church for a few weeks, so we've been spending some time in Colorado. We were been in, we've been in Basalt, hanging out with the Mitamas, um this weekend. It's just been absolutely wonderful. So we're, we're uh, looking at John chapter 17 this morning. I hear that you are in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and this fits well with what you're doing because this is uh, a a dialogue from Jesus that is profound and I think life-changing, but not one that you get in the book of Mark, so it's a nice opportunity to scoot over to John and then and you'll be back in the book of Mark. Most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with Legos, those tiny uh, multicolored bricks that you use to build things. Some of us played with these when we were young. Some of us still play with these. There's there's Lego uh, conventions. In fact, there's one going on right now. Many adults come out to this, and if, if that's your thing, then that's totally fine with me. So, so imagine a seven-year-old. Imagine a seven-year-old building a castle filled with various Lego people, and then imagine that the same kid who is 
who has built this castle is hovering over the castle and in this very conceited tone demanding that the little Lego people glorify their creator. And maybe the kid even kind of puts some of the Lego people on their knees and, and presides over the castle. If you're a parent and you saw this going on, you would be very concerned because when people act like that, it's a little bit off-putting. And when we see passages in Scripture that talk about the glory of God, especially passages where God appears to be requesting glory, many of us probably find passages like this similarly off-putting. Either we're concerned that God might have character deficiencies, that he's some sort of egomaniac, or we're concerned that God's interest in his own glory might actually preclude him from caring at all about us. This morning we're dealing with one of those glory passages. We're dealing with one of those glory passages, but the good news is that this passage that we're in this morning helps us see the connection between God's glory and Jesus' cross work. Helps us see the connection between God's glory and Jesus' cross work, a term we are using broadly this morning to encapsulate Jesus' death on the cross, His resurrection, His ascension to the Father, His exaltation. In fact, not only are God's glory and Jesus' cross work connected, it turns out that this, this cross work is actually the apex, it's the, it's the height of God's glory, and understanding that connection will help us see how it is that God's glory and our best interests actually go very much in hand. And all of this might sound awfully academic at the start, and we're certainly going to go deep this morning because this is a a rather deep passage, but boy, is all of this relevant to the way we think and live. So we'll have to think a bit, but it will, I think, pay off in the glory of being a guest preacher, is if it doesn't pay off, you can just let us know, and and Luke can re-preach this passage next week and, and try again. This morning we're going to explore the relationship between the glory of God and the cross of Christ in three stages. Three stages. First, the purpose for Jesus' cross work. Second, the motivation for Jesus' cross work. And then, finally, the outcome of Jesus' cross work. So the purpose, the motivation, and the outcome. And we'll begin right away with this first stage, the purpose for Jesus' cross work. So once Jesus arrived In Jerusalem, you can look back at this event in John chapter 12. He spent a significant amount of time with his disciples, giving them some final instructions before his departure. So Jesus had triumphantly entered Jerusalem on a donkey, but soon he would be leaving on a cross, and he wanted his disciples to be prepared. In the previous several chapters in the book, of John narrate this farewell discourse. It's, it's a very long goodbye, but this morning we encounter a very significant transition. See verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So suddenly Jesus concludes this farewell discourse. He lifts his eyes up to heaven and he begins to pray. And why this transition? Because the hour of Jesus' cross work is no longer imminent. It's here. 
It's arrived. Father, the hour has come. And assuming the disciples were still within earshot of Jesus as he prayed, you, you know their anxiety was surely becoming more of a panic at this point. Time's up. Things are about to completely change because Jesus is leaving now. The most important thing to notice in verses 1 and 2 is that the events, the events of this crosswork, of the crosswork, the, the content of the so-called hour are primarily intended, as we see here, to reveal God's glory, including the glory of both the Father and the Son. As Jesus puts it, Father, I, I know the hour is here, and I'm going to proceed with the plan, and as I do, would you glorify your Son, that I may in turn glorify you. So Jesus is saying, Father, as these events unfold, as these events unfold, as I am arrested and and tortured and mocked and crucified and ultimately rise again from the dead, would you wrap me in splendor that I might reveal your splendor? So what's with the glory fest? There's a lot of glorification going on in this passage in both directions. Is, Is God some sort of egomaniac? Look at verse 2. Notice that Jesus prays for this mutual glorification since, since you, that is the Father, have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. So it turns out, it turns out that the glorification is necessary for the sake of Jesus' mission to seek and to save the lost. The language used in Luke Chapter 19, verse 10. Father, you've given me authority for this mission, and I've been obedient to this mission to seek and to save the lost. Now, now what do you say about a bit of glory along the way? And if you were to sit down today and read the rest of the book of John, in fact, if you've got a half hour this afternoon, I would encourage you to do this. If you were to sit down today and read the rest of the book of John, you would find John, the author for whom this book is named, giving us a front row seat for this crosswork, which includes a whole lot of glory. A whole lot of glory. You'll find Jesus peacefully volunteer for his own arrest, and in the meantime, caution one of his own disciples, one of his closest disciples, not to be violent, even in the face of a completely unjust arrest. You'd see Jesus completely amaze a Roman governor during an interrogation to the point that the governor publicly declares that he finds no guilt in him, seeks to release him, and even calls him king. You'd see Jesus' death progress exactly according to prophetic predictions. You'd see his lifeless body arrayed with with myrrh and, and aloes, you'd see Mary Magdalene and eventually some disciples rejoicing in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. And by the way, if you investigate the other gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection, you'd see even more glory. You'll see the Jerusalem temple curtain torn in two. You'll see a Roman centurion of all people who, while Jesus was, was still hanging on the cross, was so overwhelmed by the glory of what he was seeing. As it unfolded, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. So the progression of these events in John and elsewhere is is brimming with glory. 
and accordingly lives are being changed. One way or the other. The, the lost and seeking are being found, and simultaneously the lost and obstinate are pushed further into their obstinance. So it turns out that the, the magnification of God's glory and his love for us are intimately bound. The magnification of God's glory results in his people putting their faith in him, the fountain of true love. And it, it makes sense. If, if God exists, I, I sure hope he's glorious. If he exists, I sure hope he's glorious because that's a God worth treasuring and following. Who wants to follow a pedestrian or impotent God? So God magnifies himself in part that we might taste and see that the Lord is good, that we might truly know him and his son. When God glorifies himself, he is, in fact, loving his people. When we object, this is is uncomfortable to admit, but I want to propose this. I want to propose that when we object... When anyone objects to passages like this where God is glorifying himself, I think what it often shows us is that we have a relatively low view of God and a relatively high view of ourselves. We see ourselves even subconsciously. A lot of us would never admit this verbally, but sometimes subconsciously we see ourselves as relatively God-like. That's been the, the universal human problem since the Garden of Eden. We see ourselves as somewhat godlike, and so we, we bristle at the thought of God elevating himself too far above the rest of us. In our view, there's, there's nothing loving about that because God is elevating himself at our expense. God can either glorify himself or he can love us, but not both. But then the cross comes along, the cross comes along and blows all of this up. It blows all of this up. Jesus' cross work reveals both the spectacular extent of God's glory and just how underqualified we are to be God. In fact, we're so underqualified to be God that we actually need the one true God to rescue us from this futile pursuit of God-likeness that we might be restored into a right relationship with him. But the cross work doesn't just reveal the need for the rescue, it simultaneously accomplishes the rescue and is thereby the greatest act of love in the history of the world. 1 John 4.10, very famously, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus says, Father, glorify me that I might glorify you. In, in doing so, those you have given to me will indeed get eternal life. They will be loved far more than they could ever have imagined. So God's glory is the primary purpose of his cross work, but it's also best for us, and it's the preeminent expression of God's love. That's the foundation of the argument that we're making this morning, but now we're going to expand on it. We have our, our bowl of granola, as it were, and now we're going to add some, some raisins and maybe some little pieces of coconut if you, if you like that. 
And that brings us to our second stage, the motivation for Jesus' crosswork. So we have the purpose for Jesus' crosswork, but what's the motivation? And the primary purpose of Jesus' crosswork, as we said, was the glory of God, and it turns out that the primary motivation for Jesus' crosswork also has to do with God. We'll come back to verse 3, but for now, skip it and go to verses 4 and 5. I, Jesus, glorified you, God the Father, that is, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And I'm mainly focusing here on verse 4, which shows us that Jesus did his work, that is, the, the work of his earthly ministry and his imminent cross work. He did all of this out of obedience to the Father. That was his motivation. He did all of this out of obedience to the Father. I accomplished the work you gave me to do. We see the same sentiment in another famous prayer from Jesus around the same time in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his arrest. If you look at the book of Luke, chapter 22, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Notice, and this is very important, that we are not part of this particular prayer. We are not part of this particular prayer. Jesus does not say, man, I'd really love to avoid an unspeakably painful death, but you know, I just, I just love my disciples so much that I'll do it anyway. I can't help myself. There is a sense in which that is implied in Jesus' obedience, but it's actually not the primary motivator. D.A. Carson, one of the better New Testament Scholars in the world, I'm especially biased because myself and Luke had him as a professor in grad school. But we think a lot of him. And he says this about Jesus' obedience. He says the dominating motive that drove him, that is Jesus, onward to perfect obedience was his resolution out of love for his Father to be at one with the Father's will. Though we poor sinners are the unfathomably rich beneficiaries of God's plan of redemption, we are not at the center of everything. At the center was the love of the Father for the Son, and the love of the Son for the Father. That's what's at the center. Now, I'm making this point, are we simply splitting hairs? Does this really matter? Does this really matter? We're not splitting hairs because it's actually very important. It's practically very important to understand that God is at the center of everything and we are the beneficiaries and not the other way around. This affects the way we encourage one another. It affects the way we counsel one another. It affects the way we understand our identity. It's so tempting, and I, I see this sometimes creep into to Christian writing, whether it be articles or books or even music, to write things that essentially make us the stars of the show, and, and God is the beneficiary of our spirituality, as if you know, God is desperate for us, He can't be happy without us, and, and when we start following Him, it makes Him so very happy. But actually, God is the star of the show. He's at the center of everything. And when we acknowledge this and and worship Him accordingly, then we benefit. We benefit profoundly. He doesn't need us in the sense that He can't be enough without us. In fact, within the Trinity itself, there is perfect and, and glorious love. 
There is perfect communion among the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's always been there, even before God created the world. In fact, Jesus hints at this in verse 5, right here in our passage. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So God has all the community and love he needs within himself. And that means that his decision to invite us into his love is an act of grace that benefits us and reveals his glory. So the cross work, the motivation, is obedience to the, to the will of the Father. But it turns out that in his, his incredibly gracious love, he invites us into it. Let me show you why this matters so much, why, why this kind of theological precision is a really big deal. Consider our battles with insecurity. This, is, this has got to be a universal battle. Everybody wrestles at some point with insecurity. Even people who are confident wrestle with insecurity. That's why their, their confidence often manifests itself as pride, because they're insecure. Everyone wrestles with insecurity. Dr. Sharon Miller is the author of the profoundly helpful book, Free of Me, Why Life is Better When It's Not About You. Highly recommend this book by Sharon Miller, Free of Me, Why Life is Better When It's Not About You. And in it, she reminds us that spiritually speaking, there are two primary causes of insecurity. One we talk about all the time, and that's low self-esteem. And she defines this as the inability to see ourselves the way that God sees us. That's how she talks about self-esteem, and I would talk about it in the same way. We, We see ourselves as worthless, so it is well worth our time, of course, to remind one another biblically, that's part of the reason why church community is so important. We, we remind one another biblically that we are, in fact, very valuable and precious to God. Of course, other causes of, of low self-esteem might be related to depression. That might require professional counseling or medical intervention. The issue of, of low self-esteem is getting a ton of attention today. In fact, when I was in fifth grade, when I was in fifth grade, I grew up in Southern California. When I was in fifth grade, every single Friday we had something called Project Self-Esteem, PSC. I have no idea if they do this over here, but basically someone in a, with a sock puppet would show up and talk for 30, 45 minutes about how great we were, and we would do all these activities. And, of course, we're just thinking we're missing out on recess, which is exactly what happened every single Friday. This has been going on for some time. We talk about low self-esteem a lot, and and there is a sense in which we do need to talk about it. And, And the Bible speaks to it. The second cause of insecurity is self preoccupation. Is self preoccupation, which means that the way out of insecurity isn't just thinking more highly of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Thinking of ourselves less. We don't talk about this nearly as much, especially in the West, in the cultural West. And surely because it's very uncomfortable to talk about, but it's important that we do talk about it because mere affirmation and encouragement alone do not fix self-preoccupation. Affirmation even godly affirmation when we're gathered as a community, it has, it has a ceiling. It has an upper limit because ultimately our gaze should not be on ourselves, but on Jesus. 
Sharon Miller puts it like this, when the majority of our message, of our messages for insecure people are about our self-worth, we gradually get the idea that Jesus came to earth and died simply to help us like ourselves. But as we've seen in this text, the motivation for Jesus' cross work was primarily about his obedience to the Father, the purpose of his glory, for the purpose of his glory. And when we, when we behold that splendor, when we behold that splendor, oh, how we benefit. Then we really benefit. So when we're wrestling with insecurities, with self-doubt, which again, is, it's, it's universal. Whatever you want to call it. Yes, we affirm one another's value and dignity, but then along with that we say, but remember, we affirm one another in the Lord, but we say, but remember, you're not the star of the show. God is, so fix your eyes on Him and His glory. Satisfy yourself with Him rather than yearning for contentment based on your daily assessment of your self-worth. That's how we encourage one another in the Lord. And unless we get at that, at that second part, that more uncomfortable part, and in all likelihood our insecurities will, will persist, it can't just be all rah-rah all the time. It also has to be, hey, look at God. And when we gaze upon the glory of God and, and repent of our attempts at God-likeness and trust in Jesus and, and walk with Him, the benefits are tremendous. They're tremendous. And that brings us to our third and final stage, the outcome of Jesus' cross work. There's, there's actually there are many outcomes of Jesus' cross work. So this morning, we're focusing on the outcome described in our text. And the outcome is this, is as we gaze upon the glory of God and repent of our attempts at God-likeness and trust in Jesus and walk with Him, we actually get to know the one true God of the universe. As we see in verse 3, Jesus equates this knowing of God with eternal life. Verse 3, and this is eternal life. We want to listen at this point, right? He's describing eternal life. Very important. And this, right here, is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The point here, and this is important, the point here is not so much that when you know God and you get eternal life, although that's true in a sense. The point is more that knowing God is eternal life because God is at the center of said life. God is eternal life. Some of you have probably seen... The stickers and the apparel that say, ball is life. Or maybe in the valley, it's ski is life. I don't know. Maybe that's a thing in Florida and California. But you see all these stickers everywhere now that say, ball is life. It's a reference to basketball. And I like basketball, but it turns out that knowing God is life. Knowing God is life. That's where life is really found. And this knowledge that that Jesus speaks of is not merely intellectual. It's, It's not just knowing things about God. It's relational knowledge that begins when you start walking with Him and it will continue for all of eternity. And that's why we can say that eternal life, in a sense, begins now because eternal life is knowing God. It's knowing Him. It's relational knowledge that begins when you start walking with Him and it will continue for all of eternity. As we walk with Him, we learn more about our adoption in Christ as God's children and the inheritance found within 
As we walk with him, we learn more about his character, his, his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his justice. And the more we learn about him, the more we enjoy him. And, and that is true eternal living right there. That's eternal life. That's eternal living. Because I want to be crystal clear about the, the connection between beholding the glory of God and knowing God, consider this exhortation from C.S. Lewis. He says, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore you know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A, a proud man, a proud woman is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So let's follow the argument again. Jesus prayerfully requests glorification by the Father so that Jesus might in turn glorify the Father so that we might behold the awesome splendor of God in a remarkable way so that it might knock us on our tails so that we might truly know and enjoy the one whom is actually above us. That's the argument in this text. And so we see that the glory of God and the best interests of his people come together in perfect harmony. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. So we should always be asking ourselves, we should always be asking ourselves, do do we know God? Do we really know him? Do we really know him? Not just things about him. Do we really know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent? Notice, by the way, that this passage speaks very specifically about the God whom we are to know. It's not a generic God. It's not some generic God. It's the one true God, specifically the one who sent Jesus Christ. Do we really know this God? Do we know this God? If, if not, that the way forward is beholding the glory of God and reaching the end of ourselves. That should be our petition. God would... Would you help me behold your glory and, and reach the end of myself so that I might see you as supreme? That's the way forward. If you're here this morning and, and would say that you know God to some degree, but since the need to grow in our understanding of and an enjoyment of Him, and really that should be all of us who, who say we, we know God to some degree, there's always room for growth. We've never fully arrived. If that describes you, it turns out that the, the way we grow has a lot to do with understanding that this, this whole journey, it isn't merit-based. It isn't merit-based. We're not growing so that God might love us more. We're, we're not proving something to God. Instead, we're, we're moving forward by relishing in the truth that those who have trusted in Jesus, those the Father gave the Son for eternal life, those people are actually already known by God. You're known by God. In fact, in his classic book, Knowing God, the British-Canadian theologian J.I. Packer argues that understanding this reality of being known by God is even more important than knowing God. He says this, What matters supremely is not that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. 
He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off me or, or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. And so it's actually dangerous in some ways to talk about knowing God because we could leave here and, and, and be very anxious and say, oh my goodness, i I, I got to know him more. I, how, how? And there's a sense in which we should think about that, but more importantly, know that if you are following Jesus Christ, you're already known by God. He knows you. He knows everything about you. I think this is one of the most comforting things we could ever tell one another. That you are known by God. And J.I. Packer thinks so when he goes on to write that there is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic. Based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. The, the danger is that we'll go out and, and, and we'll, we'll want to know God more and, and we'll, we'll come up short. And when we do, we need to remember that God knows us. He knows everything about us. He knows everything about us. And there is no moment at which his care falters. So, so those of us who are journeying along the way to truly knowing God, who are following Jesus, you can grow with confidence you can grow with confidence because you're already known by God. You're already known by God. The bumps along the way won't surprise him. They won't scare him. And so here's the thing. We have the freedom. We have the freedom to behold the glory of God and grow, however imperfectly, into an increasingly wonderful knowledge of God, which is true, eternal life. God, in his grace, gives us the space because he knows us to grow and our understanding of him, and our knowledge of him, and thereby enjoy true eternal life. And those of you who are investigating Jesus, you might be here this morning, and who are just kind of checking this whole thing out. Oh, how I hope that you will indeed experience the glory of our triune God, that you might taste and see that God is indeed very great, that he's indeed very great and worthy of knowing, that we, that we might enjoy eternal life with God. This is eternal life. It's knowing Him. And even better, being known by Him. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that You, in fact, know us, especially those of us here this morning who are following Jesus and who are aware of our inconsistencies, persisting sin, Thank you, Father, that you know us and that when you went to the cross, you did so primarily for the sake of not, not glorifying us, but glorifying the Father, glorifying the Son, that we might be blown away in the midst of our imperfection, that we might be blown away by, by your perfection and treasure your grace and grow in our, our knowledge and, and understanding of the one true God, that we might enjoy eternal life, even now, not just in eternity, but even now. We thank you for that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.